I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. I've mainly been eating butter biscuits and watching The Greatest Answer since I last saw you. What are butter biscuits and what is The Greatest Answer? <laughs> the Greatest Answer is a BBC programme where, um, like a talent contest, and it is absolutely brilliant. It's the best talent contest that's ever been on television. It's got absolutely no critical... Um, attention and um, it's very moving and butter biscuits are biscuits with I think double the amount of butter because biscuits naturally have butter in them so for them to be called butter biscuits insinuates that it's a bit like drinking buttermilk so that's that's very disappointing actually because I thought what you were going to tell me is that you have taken to spreading a layer of butter on a biscuit I think that's what these basically are but then they're baked Right. So thank you, Waitrose, for creating fatty little bickies to catch my attention. Anything with butter in the title, I'm, I'm there. <laughs> Dolly, four live shows of everything I know about love since I last saw you. Are you a little on your knees and what were your highlights? I'm a little on my knees, but it was very, very fun. Um, doing the Palladium was insane. Thank you so much to any Hilo listeners who came. It was um, one of the most memorable nights of my life. It was I was very, very, very nervous, but it was very fun. And thank you so much to my darling Pandora, who, after so much stress, found me my perfect outfit. I think it's like my dream outfit. Did it keep you locked up till lunch? Nothing fell out? till lunch. It's, It's like a gorgeous jumpsuit. And it was so 80s. It was so the Palladium. It was perfect. So thank you so much for... You look wonderful in it. I wish I'd seen you in it. Oh, Live. thank you, my love. No, it was great. And then Norwich was great, and one of my best friends lives in Norfolk, so I got to stay with her afterwards and go for a walk the next day. And the Brighton shows, the first one was great, and the evening one was great, but it was the first time I felt us lose control of the crowd a tiny bit, and it was stressful. They were just, they were just, there was a group contingent of women that uh, were quite drunk and. <laughs> So as as someone that's done a lot of live shows, would you say that the biggest peril is when women slip from tipsy to wasted? Yeah, and the problem is, is that they <laughs> were sitting on... But the problem is, is, I've written a book being like, don't be ashamed of hedonism. So I can't be like, <laughs> girls, can you be a bit more ladylike? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, they know that I have once been that woman drinking white wine, shouting, yes, queen, <laughs> after everything I said, literally everything I said. And the problem is, is they weren't being mean. They were just over, they were overexcited. So they were just like yes, talking queen. so loudly. So 
Lauren and I would be in the middle of se- of talking about something quite hefty, and then they would just—it's like they thought we were the radio that was on in their kitchen. So they just started loudly talking about their experiences. It was fine, and they were very sweet. It was just the first time where I felt really distracted on stage. Has that taught you how to be a better audience member? Uh, yeah, it's just yeah, it has because <laughs> I think I probably am someone who because I'm always gassing at the cinema or at comedy shows, whatever. I probably do like whisper a bit to my friend, and if the person who's on stage is well, you you've seen me with public speaking. I get I find it very very hard to concentrate and to keep my train of thought. So when you've got people just when you can hear like audible yakking underneath you, it just completely distracts you. I think my worst is when someone's asleep on the front row. <laughs> I think I found that the hardest to... <laughs> Have you ever had that? Yeah. No, you haven't. Where? Yeah. Well, her eyes were closed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to everyone who pledged to read my essay, The Authentic Lie, published by the independent crowdfunding publisher, The Pound Project. You can still pledge for another 14 days, should you like to read it. It's The link to that is in my Instagram and Twitter bio. I've pledged. Thanks very much, Dolly. I can't wait to read it. Dolly and I did a first for the high-low this week. We appeared a deux on another podcast. Yes, so we've never done that before. Yeah, we've done a part podcast, but not together. So we enjoyed a mad little 20 minutes. Totally, totally insane. <laughs> With women's ours Jane Garvey and her fellow BBC presenter Fee Glover. For Who their... are so funny. They're two of the funniest women I think I've ever met. <laughs> for their Fortunately with Fee and Jane podcast, Dolly said it's us in 15 years. I think you're Jane and I'm Fee. God, scattering week. <laughs> Did you see that Jane Garvey tweeted, someone said, I think Pandora will end up being Jane and Dolly will end up being Fee. And she just wrote very laconically, well, I pity Pandora, <laughs> in response. Claire, a Twitter user called Claire wrote, oh my God, I can't listen to this because then the first time will be over. Or something, that, you know, very excitable. And as you say, Jane is very laconic and she replied going, don't worry, Claire, you can listen to it again. <laughs> If you'd like to listen to the Fortunately podcast, to listen to me natter on about my time being drunk at Exeter University and Pandora boggling Jane and Fee's minds with her talk of side trance, then you can download that now. I think it was episode 81 and it came out last Friday. It's Random Acts of Kindness Day on Tuesday. We had National Kindness Day back in November and Tuesday is Random Acts of Kindness Day. I love the idea of this. One thing I think I'm going to do is buy a hot beverage for the person behind me when I buy my morning flat white on Tuesday. Doll, what's your favourite random act of kindness that someone's done to you or that you plan to do on Tuesday? I think that's a really lovely idea, buying a hot drink for someone for no other reason than just trying to perk up their day. I also have to discuss my favourite giraffe when it comes to talking about random acts of kindness. Don't look at me like that. (laughs) I'm just wondering how this links, but please go on. I think I have told you about him before because I was so obsessed with him when I worked in TV development that I came up with like three different shows. Can I just halt you here? Yeah. You are so obsessed with something new every single week. (laughs) If I was to keep on top of all of your obsessions, tell me about the giraffe. (laughs) So, Armstrong Bailey. (laughs) Bailey? donned a furry suit his mother made him before travelling to different places to do good deeds. He called himself the Good Giraffe and he's from Dundee where he lives with his girlfriend and his daughter. He was originally from Glasgow. He has been spotted in Edinburgh. 
over the course of six months. I don't know if he's still going. If anyone's seen Armstrong, the giraffe, who is a man, obviously, dressed up in a giraffe costume, I should probably make clear, um, then do let us know. But he was seen handing out free bananas and waters to runners at the Edinburgh Half Marathon. He cleaned up litter on the beach and he gave away £10 vouchers to mothers in hospitals. That's a good one. If you see any litter on the street, instead of just walking past it, Do a David Sedaris, yeah. Does he always pick it up? He spends something like eight hours a day wandering up and down where he lives in the Peak District, I think, picking up rubbish. So if you stopped replying to emails, you could do that. Yeah. I'll tell you what would be a very decent random act of kindness, and I do sometimes think about it, and I might stop carrying around little baggies, is picking up a dog turd off the pavement. It's not yours, but everyone else is going to carry on walking past yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. That by it's not yours, I mean it's not your poo, yeah. and it's not your dog's poo either. <laughs> you hate the word poo. I just hate talking about poo, and it's just so difficult in our relationship because you just always gravitate towards it. I don't... Gra- <laughs> a couple of things I want to bring your attention to. Firstly, I'm due a smear test, and I've been so impressed with the NHS who wrote me both a letter... And sent me a text. I think that's a pretty incredible level of service there. So do I. And I also would like to say, I know it's probably obvious for many of you, but I know lots of women who have avoided smear tests or put them off because they're scared of them. As someone who has had three, four in my lifetime, they are really not a big deal. They're a tiny bit uncomfortable and a little bit awkward, but mainly the most uncomfortable bit is having a man or a woman say to you, can you just pop off your knickers and pop onto the... Popping, put pop your legs up here. That's lots the of popping. Bit. Lots of popping. You can also, I think, specify a female doctor for anyone that's worried about. Yeah. I think I've always had female doctors, whether I by accident it, I or think design. People are mainly worried about the physical sensation, and just as a woman who is like got quite a low pain threshold <laughs> and has had a few of them, let me reassure you, they're really, really not that painful. They're just a tiny bit uncomfortable. They're over super fast and they can save your life. Same as childbirth, just a tiny bit uncomfortable, <laughs> over super fast. Oh, good, good. I suspected that. Um, have you seen the Paddy Power adverts with Ryan Giggs's brother, Rodri? No. I am so... CJ, look, he loves it. Look at his little face. I am so titillated by how brazen they are. Ryan Giggs famously slept mm. with his brother's wife. Mm. And his brother, Rodri, has done this advert with Paddy Power where the slogan is, loyalty's dead. Is his brother with standing with him? Is Ryan Giggs standing with no, him? No, Ryan Giggs is still with his wife. Rod- and so it's literally just this man, Rodri? Yes. But it's so random for anyone who doesn't know the story. Everyone knows the story except you, CJ. Does everyone know the story except Dolly? Yeah. Yeah. So he's poking fun at the situation and he says, he's talking about the advert, he said... Um, I'm over it, he's over it, my ex-wife, the one that shagged his brother, is over it. It's just poking fun at the situation. I think it's pretty excellent, and I think Ryan Giggs sort of brought that upon himself after what he did with his Well, I think it's wife. totally their prerogative. Like, over and over again, I think, if someone has experienced a trauma, how they choose to poke fun of it is totally... If they want to do a Paddy Power advert... Totally, like... If it makes them happy and it's how they're recovering from the situation, then that is their business. I think, I think. he's already completely recovered and just wants to make some... A quick buck yeah. out of his horrible experience. A fairly big buck. And, of course, we cannot not mention, what do you make of the Liam Neeson Ferrari? I mean, just cartoonishly appalling. Cartoonishly appalling. Outrage and disgust feels just obvious, but I still just couldn't believe it. I read the headline on, I think it was the BBC's website... And it was so ridiculous. I just, it seemed like something that you'd read 
at the top of the onion or one of those satire pieces it was like Liam Neeson I'm not racist claims Liam Neeson after saying he carried around a weapon to attack any random black man I find it very difficult when people send me headlines from the onion because most of the time I can't really tell what's the difference between what's on the onion and what's in real headlines the 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 line of satire and reality is becoming too closely blurred for me to be able to keep up Unsurprisingly, there has been a lot on this. Liam Neeson saying he roamed the streets looking for a black man to kill did not go unnoticed. And his defence... just mind-boggling. <laughs> and his defence that he would have said that about anyone. So it, he basically said this because his friend got raped by a black man. And his response, he said, was to go around with a cosh for a week looking for a black man to beat up. He said if her rape if his friend's rapist had red hair, he'd look for a man with red hair and so on and so forth. Some have applauded him for his honesty because they say it takes strength to admit that you once felt something very wrong and that you now identify as wrong. Others, of who? course, who? like Dolly Alderton, are flabbergasted that he could ever say something like that during a press junket and claim that it isn't a racist sentiment. I thought the best bit of commentary, it was well-rounded, thoughtful, funny, was from Trevor Noah, the host of The Daily Show, and I want to insert that here. You're going to kill any black man for what a black man might have done is a form of racism, because you're going, the whole race should be condemned. So you should be able to accept and be like, yes, I, I was thinking a racist thought. But a lot of the time I find people are afraid to admit that they ever had a racist thought, because then society says you are racist forever, and then it, that's it. So there's no value in, in, in atoning, I guess, you know? Uh, and he keeps going out and giving more interviews that make it worse. I'm, just, I'm like, why do you... Like, the things that he says, I'm just like, clearly your particular set of skills doesn't include shutting the <laughs> up. In much lighter news, I have my own piece of personal news, um, which is very, very exciting and a bit of a game-changer. And I'd like to tell everyone about it. They are the co-op salt and vinegar crisps. <laughs> These are your butter biscuits. Why didn't you mention up top when I was talking about my buttery biscuits? Because I wanted to leave you all in suspenders. Suspenders? It is. <laughs> it is the... Is that my called, devil's avocado? They're called the sea salt and chardonnay wine vinegar crisps. And I have never put anything so good inside my mouth. Oof. They are mind-blowingly salty and vinegary. You said this about um, chipsticks last week. No, I, I actually didn't say that, Pandora, but thank you very much for bringing that up. I said that about the crisps fries that I bought in multi-pack but because I was feeling ill and they soothed me. These they soothed you. are more just a taste explosion. You almost afterwards feel like you need to screw your head back on. Thank you for bringing us some. I only... <laughs> I didn't buy any to eat at home. I had them when I was on the road. <laughs> <laughs> and they're now included in my rider. So anyway, everyone go out and try those if you're a salt and vinegar nut. I basically realise I love anything in vinegar. I would eat you in vinegar, I think. In other news, Desert Island Discs was voted the best radio show of all time. That will surprise precisely no one. Followed by The Archers and then radio comedy Round the Horn. It's <laughs> Round the Horn. <laughs> Sounds quite sexy. Followed by Hancock's Half Hour, which ran in the 50s. And number five was In the Psychiatrist's Chair, which ran from the early 80s to 2001. Obviously, anyone who's listened to this podcast knows that I'm a Desert Islandist fanatic. What so are your I favorites? thought I would use this as an opportunity to give a roundup of my favourites. My number one of all time is Lynn Barber. 
Number two is Emma Thompson. Carl Gerassi, who is an Austrian scientist who created the birth control pill, but who was also a kind of mad Renaissance man and a playwright. And uh, Sue Lawley delights in finding out that every day he goes on the cross trainer naked. (laughs) Um, (laughs) His is brilliant. Um, As is Kathy Burke's is a very moving one. What makes Lynn Barber your number one? Ruthlessly honest. She's so, so honest about her own misgivings and um other people and um yeah and funny she's just got really good funny anecdotes and i just love how unafraid she is of the truth and she also chooses really 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 good music so those are mine and it was the baftas on sunday night were you surprised the favorite didn't win best film I was surprised, but that the other film that won, Roma... Yeah, the, the Netflix-only Netflix one. I've heard, I haven't watched it yet, but I've heard it is astonishingly good. I'm really glad that Rami Malek won Best Actor. There's been a lot on Bohemian Rhapsody not being deserving of prizes. Most recently in the Sunday Times culture, Jonathan Dean was in a prolonged state of shock that audiences were ignoring critics mm. and loving the film, despite mm. the dire reviews. What does that say, do you think? What does that say, as someone who's watched it? Is it about the music of Queen? I think uh, what he was suggesting is that the critics no longer have the authority that they had. And I have to say, I think that's kind of right. Mm. I don't think that, I think that, you know, audiences should be allowed to be kind of swayed by their own. Um, I think it says that we're all really emotional because it's a really, like, gorgeous... I imagine what the critics thought was it's a bit soft. They also thought the editing was appalling because the... um, the director on Bohemian Rhapsody got chucked off, do you remember, for, I think, sexual assault oh, allegations. Yeah, yeah. So the next director that came along had sort of this random pile of cuts that mm. he then stitched together with a sort of, you know... But, I mean, I mean, what a task that must have And been. also, audiences don't notice bad editing. Mm. I didn't notice it. Um, I don't think they care about shitty editing. And Rami was fabulous as Freddie, despite those very OTT prosthetic teeth. So I think it was a, a fair win. On that subject, we had some great emails in the mailbag this week, and one of them was a message in response to our discussion of Bohemian Rhapsody, and in particular, uh, the way we spoke about Freddie Mercury's sexuality. It's a really good point. Thank you for making me aware of my error, and I will endeavour to be a bit more thoughtful when I talk about the nuance of people's Mm. sexuality. I loved your conversation about Bohemian Rhapsody but was jarred by your description of Freddie Mercury as a gay man and wanted to illustrate why this matters. The film immortalises the fact that Freddie was called gay his whole adult life and was ignored when he corrected people and claimed his bisexuality such as in the scene when he comes out to Mary and insists he is bisexual. Sadly, that is how bisexual men are typically treated and it is extremely painful and often deadly. Suicide rates among bisexual people are high. Nearly every famous bisexual man, from Cary Grant to David Bowie to Freddie Mercury, has been pigeonholed as gay. Their identity, so crucial to who they are, has been erased. As soon as a man who loved women falls in love with another man, he is assumed to be gay. Bisexual men remain in the closet at much higher rates than gay men to avoid the horrific treatment they receive from both gay and straight people. Also in the mailbag, we got a lot of responses to our discussion of the importance of daydreaming. One listener in Australia mentioned there's a social awareness campaign going on which sings the praises of daydreaming and looking out into the world, with research showing doing so can help your brain form abstract connections, creative ideas and aha moments. I 
could have read that like Alan Partridge, but I decided not to. It's called Look Up, www.lookup.org.au. We were also so honoured to hear from Bridget O'Day, who has written a wonderful piece for the Irish Times on how art and culture has been an essential tool for healing while she has been bedbound and suffering from a chronic illness. And she also wrote the piece to highlight the need for arts funding. Illness can exile you into an arena of loneliness. It is both time spent alone and an experience that tends to be unshared by peers. For the first time in 27 years, my confidence was knocked. My belief in myself has been rattled, and that in itself is rattling. Art has helped me to reassert my position in this world. From Emily Pine to Oliver Jeffers to Dallas Clayton and at Josie.doodles, hard-hitting and gently embracing, giving inspiration back the meaning it lost to its Instagram hashtag. Other times, it has allowed me to escape. The wet cloth melts away and medicine bottles fade, and I'm on the couch with the Hilos, Pandora and Dolly, sipping Cremont and fighting over the last prawn sandwich. Ah, oh, prawn sandwich. Isn't that lovely? That's lovely. Dol, what have you enjoyed this week in between touring on your bus? <laughs> I, I think you should get a, a like, but like a three-wheeler bus like they're having only fools and horses that says love stories on the side. Actually, no, no, I want a Hilo bus. Don't get a love stories one. <laughs> I've been listening to The Last Days of August, which is a brilliant audible series by John Ronson. Um, Yeah, you'd really enjoy it. Yeah, I love him, especially in audio version. It almost acts as a kind of second chapter to The Butterfly Effect, which was a documentary audio series about the porn industry and and in particular the butterfly effect of... Um, porn streaming, free porn streaming, the butterfly effect that that has had on porn performers, porn users, and society. It was like it was such a kind of rigorous and far-reaching storytelling exercise, and it's one of the best audio series I've ever listened to. The Last Days of August is much slower and much gentler, and it specifically hones in on a pornographic actress called August Ames who very sadly took her own life. And the series is John Ronson piecing together uh, what may have led her to such a sad end. And through that journey, he looks at the vast, vast discrepancy between um, the experience of men working in the porn industry and the experience of women because he says sometimes and the people he interviews says sometimes there's a bit of a shorthand um that's slightly misleading in the porn industry that it's almost like a feminist industry because women um it's one of the few industries where i think women have a much higher pay margin he looks into the nuances of why female porn performers are still often at risk or silenced And um, it also goes into a very interesting and complicated personal relationship with her husband. And as ever, as John Watson always does, he forms this kind of close, continuing dialogue uh, with with her husband. So it's um, it's just really, really well. It's also very interested in porn to have done. Normally, his projects are all quite you know diverse. Mm. So to do another very similar one 
He hasn't done a book on it yet, has he? No, I think he. I think think it's because first of all, he's so interested in the concept of shame and shaming, Mm. and obviously, for many people, there's nothing more shameful than being in the porn industry. But also, there's nothing more shameful than having sex. Exactly, but but even more interestingly, alongside that, nearly every adult in the Western world would have at one point used porn (laughs) so there's a very interesting duality there Mm. that he likes to kind of dig into which is we are fine with porn performers as a product but we are repulsed by them as humans Mm. because we load our own shame around sex which is so cultural and so inherited and so deep-rooted and long-running onto the vessels of the uh, onto these performers as kind of the vessels of our shame. So, yeah, I just could listen to, to him unpacking all this stuff forever. Sounds really interesting. It also makes you re-examine your completely fucked up relationship with shame and sex and how you shame others. So, yeah, that's a very, very good series. And I am just delighting in every interview with Richard E. Grant at the moment. I saw a piece that was running on Esquire the other day with the headline it was something like Richard E. Grant's unbridled joy at his own success is yeah, what the ha- world needs right now I love him being like he's so open about how he's like I mean I'm having my moment now and I'm so enjoying it yeah <laughs> I was like, I read an interview with Hadley Freeman with him and she was a little bit cynical about it as a whole shtick and she was slight so a recent one yeah this week this past week oh I missed that where she was kind of, it was just a down the line interview that she wrote up and you can tell her stances are you really this excited about it all as someone who's been in the public eye and acting for most of your life? Mm. Or is it a, is it like a managed, appealing thing that you're doing? I have to say, I think that's slightly unfair. When you listen to interviews with Richard E. Grant or you read interviews with him historically, he just seems like a really enthusiastic, open-hearted, curious, sweet man. And actually, the interview that I listened to with him this week that I really loved was on Awards Chatter. I've mentioned this podcast to you before. It's so, so brilliant. It's by The Hollywood Reporter. And I don't know how they do it, but it's like every the most famous performers in the world do these really deep, long like searches. Like Keira Knightley took about having a Keira Knightley yeah. one. Yeah. And he is brilliant on it. And he talks about... But he does that thing that he always does. Like he did it on my friend Roisin Ingalls' podcast when he was a guest. That he keeps trying to make it into a conversation with the interviewer and the interviewer has to has to sort of gently say you don't have to have a curiosity in my life this is a kind of one way we're just interested in yours but again I think that just shows someone just really decent and really sweet he's a great anecdotalist he um talks about why he there's a very funny story as to why he ended up with the e in the middle of his name he talks about the legacy of with Nail and I and the kind of students with their drinking because he doesn't drink that's what's so funny yeah yeah and in Can You Ever Forgive Me which has a lot of buzz around at the moment he plays again a kind of hard living um, alcoholic so he talks about about that Um, it's just a fabulous interview and I love Richard E. Grant I want him to be my best friend how about you Panda I have been watching the American remake of Camping by Jenny Connor and Lena Dunham. It's it was originally Julia Davis's comedy show. Yeah. And we love Julia Davis. She is one of the masterminds behind the filthy and fucked up Joan and Jerrica. And Sally Forever. And Sally Forever. Oh god, Sally Forever. (laughs) 
and episode four and <laughs> human remains she's and night night yeah. yeah so she's um she's a really particular strand of comedy and she's definitely having a bit of a moment at the moment yeah um and lena dunham's a huge fan of her so she adapted it for american audiences it has been totally panned yeah but I've i really like it i haven't seen the original and i want to go and find it now but i found it really funny i have to say i really like lena dunham's writing it's so she's so good at capturing bits of the zeitgeist in really kind of sardonic zingers mm. so jennifer garner plays this incredibly neurotic um mean main woman basically and she is talking about how she introduced two women and she says you know i I can't believe they're now friends and she says well i i introduced them both at a phoblatic sample sale and it was just such a simple (laughs) detail she absolutely yeah i think she really does so as i said it has been critically reviewed really really badly but i really enjoyed it i did also quite enjoy the link to an interview with julia davis that you sent me dolly oh her throwing shade well she throws shade but and, and all she says is, they sent me a link and I couldn't open it. <laughs> and that was it. Did you, was that and the bit about being in the American writer's room and how she sent a few suggestions, but it was definitely not what they were looking for. <laughs> my favourite... Maybe, sorry, I'm being unfair. Maybe she wasn't throwing shade, but my favourite sentence in it no, was she when just, she I said... Just, she just sounded completely disinterested, which I found quite funny. When she said she was in the writer's room and she said, they all just talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I really liked it and it's on Sky at the moment, should you want to watch it. And David Tennant is very good at playing Jennifer Garner's like very geeky well-meaning husband Mm. um i also went to see last week true west which is on at the theater and is a sam shepherd play and stars kit harrington and johnny flynn my probably most enduring and only celebrity crush as brothers i still listen to all his old albums i love them yeah Yeah. um and it what they were really good i have to say the script is a bit of a drag is it yeah i i think it's really difficult because i do like really talky things Mm. but equally the writing of a really talky thing has to really appeal to me lyrically and if something's not written the way i would like to read or or listen to then i then i'm kind of out completely i think generally is theater is too too talky you think it's too talky too much talky (laughs) do you are you a are you a big theater fan um no I'm not a big theatre fan it's uh, I, I, my brother's an actor and he and I ha- often have sort of quite big arguments about this would you ever want to write for theatre I think I, I, obviously the, the experience of theatre when it's good theatre and com- a compelling story and compelling performances is amazing but I, I do think that we have much much lower standards for what we accept as good at the theatre than what we do as telly in all other areas of storytelling I do think that and I know I'll get a lot of angry emails from directors and actors and I know it is because it is much directors harder directors and actors who does she think she is <laughs> I know it is much much harder um, I have treaded old Vic I have Spacey will be in t- oh god <laughs> I have treaded the boards myself and <laughs> no it's difficult but I do think it's rare that I go to the theatre these days and come out feeling that like I that was fabulous. Totally loved it. Yeah. Mm. I think the next time I'm going to get. I mean, it's not actually really the theatre, is it? Is my best friend and I are going to go and see Jesse Caves Sunrise? <gasps> oh, you'll love it. Comedy. You'll shit. love it. Yeah. I have also been really enjoying a Tega Awagba's podcast in good company, which 
appeals to me so much because it's really forensic and demystifying. And I'm so curious about um, the whens and the whys of things happen. Mm. And with all of her guests, Otega is as well. So if they say, oh, and I then went and did this and she'll go, but how did you get there? So who gate, like who interviewed you? How did you get to that step? It's just a really, the whole point is it's meant to be, as most of what Otega does, you know, useful for working women and kind of demythologizing, demystifying, mm. um, sharing in that sort of, well, the toolkit that was obviously her successful book. I'm a guest on it next week. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Well, I'll listen to your one then. Um, And the episode I really enjoyed was all about publishing with Abigail Bernstein. And I think she was the perfect person to have on because Abigail is head of publishing at Glean Titles, which is a new literary agent which specialises in books of kind of digital talent. So Zoella, um, my friend Catherine Ormerod, published Why Social Media is Ruining Your Life through um, Gleam. And she calls it zeitgeist publishing and she talks a lot about how it's reactive to what's going on in the world and talks about how to be reactive without being derivative one of her newest ones that she's really excited about is mrs hinch who Ah, we've obviously done as a cleaning uh influencer and she said that as soon as they signed that deal with mrs hinch tons and tons of other cleaning influencers are pitching Mm -hmm. books so Mm -hmm. it's about how to kind of be the crest of the wave rather than riding the crest of the wave she's incredibly literate not just about zeitgeist publishing because i understand that kind of digital first talent wouldn't be everyone's you know favorite genre but just about publishing in general and about reading and her and otega are both so smart and so interested and analytical about kind of the product for everything around the product which is really the way that I like to think as well so like when I read something I almost love reading the author talking about their books yeah more than I love the book sometimes yeah and you feel that with Otago and Abigail there's a bit of that that they're mm-hmm. fascinated by the process but they're actually almost more fascinated talking about the process anyway it's a re- yeah it's a really brilliant and forensic interviewing series. is actually in a world of interview podcast interviews forensic detailed interviewing is still actually quite hard to come across and it is an art yeah form. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Pulling out those details. And funny enough, someone that does it really well is Tina Brown with TBD. Mm. I absolutely loved um, an interview she did with Laura Wasser, who's one of the top divorce lawyers in the States. And Tina really makes her break it down where she says, well, where's the best state to get divorced? And And Laura literally goes through it really quick. She's like, well, California's really good because you pay child support only till 18 rather than 21. I'm mixing up these states, by the way. But she literally um, rattles through all the states and all their different policies. And again, it's like really, really forensic about Mm. the law and about divorce. And Tina just um, grills her kind of on everything. It's definitely quite geeky, but I I love that geeky level of detail. So both of those podcasts are great. And I have been reading... Vagina, a re-education by Lynn Enright. It's oh, a, I've got that on my bedside table. It's a confronting title, one for the bus, definitely. But this book's really poetic. It feels quite literary. I love the way Lynn explores everything about the vagina. So by that, I mean the kind of socialisation and the cultural response and the words we use and um, the literature around it. It's a feminist polemic, yes, But I think whilst I don't have a problem with polemics, a lot of people feel reluctant to pick up a self-described polemic for better or for worse because they think it's going to be really ranty. Mm -hmm. And this book 
isn't ranty. It's, as I said, really poetic. And I love the chapter on periods where she talks about different writers and voices on them. And I just wanted to read out something that Gloria Steinem said about periods. We deny periods, we gloss over periods, we hide periods. We ignore them, suffer through them. Tampons stuffed up sleeves and euphemisms deployed. Of course, if cisgender men got periods, things would probably be different. It's a point made in Gloria Steinem's 1978 Ms. Magazine essay, If Men Could Menstruate. So what would happen if suddenly, magically, men could menstruate and women could not? Men would brag about how long and how much. Sanitary supplies would be federally funded and free. Street guys would invent slang. He's a three-pad man. And give fives on the corner with some exchange like, man, you're looking good. Yeah, man, I'm on the rag. <laughs> TV shows would treat the subjects openly. What Steinem was saying then and what I am saying now is that, yes, periods are biologically horrible. But the fact that we live in a society in which the most dominant people do not get periods means that they are more horrible than they have to be due to the shame and secrecy that surrounds them. I'm absolutely obsessed with, I'm a three-pad man. <laughs> and I've also been looking at lots of pictures of fannies in the Guardian magazine of this Saturday past, thanks to an excerpt of Laura Dodsworth's photography book, Womanhood, The Bare Reality. I'm going to be honest here, I think I learnt a lot from this article. Did you? From the pictures and also the interviews, it reminded me, and one can never be reminded too much, how everybody is different and what women can look like and this feels like an obvious point to make but women are many so many mm. and no vagina quite frankly looks the same totally and seeing their most private parts really reminded me of that it's probably not a coffee book for my parents regardless no I totally agree and I think because also because female genitalia is so internal and more hidden you just don't see much of it whereas you just see cocks flying everywhere I almost felt quite bashful looking at these full, frontal, very close-up pictures. Of but, of, but of course it means that so many women I know for such a long time carry shame around mm. my vagina looks weird or something's strange about my vagina. And I think the more we can be exposed to just the myriad of <laughs> vaginas and what they look like and what they, the shapes they can take, I think the better we will all feel about our own. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. is it random acts of kindness day this week it's also saint valentine's day that most loved but mostly loathed day which gives me an excuse to talk about mns's love sausage quite the strangest piece of food i've ever seen you cannot get enough of the love sausage three messages i got from you on three different platforms alerting my attention to the love sausage and you ignored them all which is hateful <laughs> 
And you sent me a message this morning that asked me if I liked crumpets, and despite it being a total non sequitur, I still dutifully replied. Oh, replied. I didn't get your reply. I felt a bit bashful that I'd asked you that, and it had got. Have you noticed I haven't brought it up since I arrived here today? I know, but you sometimes throw non sequiturs at me when you're feeling like impish. No, I was going to bring us a pack of sourdough. And you crumpets. thought me ignoring it was me being like. I thought you ignoring it was you being you being like. Don't Dolly, we're meant to be prepping the high Can you stop waffling on about crumpets? I replied saying yes. I'm so sorry. I've, I've just discovered Sainsbury's sourdough tastes the difference crumpets, and they're so good. I'll bring them next time. So wellness sourdough crumpets. <laughs> anyway, back to the love sausage. Sorry, back to the love sausage. It, it, I'm actually obsessed because it really freaked me out. I invented an entire backstory for it of how it came to be, courtesy of the uh, Valentine's <laughs> Day brainstorm at MS HQ. What surprised me is how many people replied, being like, with pictures of them, including my own sister, in MS looking for the love sausage. What makes you want to eat the love sausage? Well, journalist Josh Barry took it upon himself to try the love sausage. Oh, of course, in the name of journalism, someone tried the love sausage. And report back. As a disclaimer, he said he ate it on his own because he wanted to see how romantic the experience was. Is it meant to be eaten alone? It's a large piece of food stuff. Well, maybe he didn't have someone to share his love sausage with. I love the way you made that sound like I'm shaming single people. <laughs> we should probably say what the love sausage is. It is sort of two giant Cumberland sausages wrapped in bacon in the shape of a heart with two fried eggs in the middle. He said on cooking the love sausage, the Cumberlands were cooked well, but the eggs encountered problems. One of the yolks disappeared to the bottom, leaving a plain eggy ice rink of a situation. Oh, God. A burnt bit of bacon had somehow made its way into the second, and my attempts to extract the charred pork left everything looking less appetising. Yeah, I mean, that's a good case for vegetarianism right there. (laughs) I got sent a book this week called Love Factually. Very Naturally, nice. it comes out in February by Laura Mutcher. The Science of Who, How and Why We Love. Disclaimer, I haven't yet read the book, but I wanted to mention it in the Valentine's Day segment because one of the things that tickled me most on the press release is a quote from Richard Curtis, who wrote Love Actually, who says that this book is much better and more useful than my film. <laughs> Scarlett Curtis messaged me recently, actually, with a quote from her dad that she knew that I'd love and subsequently I am going to use it in a piece where he, I think he'd done a panel event or he was being interviewed in which he was asked what his favourite love story is that he's written because obviously he's written these great, great love stories and he said it was Geraldine Granger aka the Vicar of Dibley and Alice Tinker that was his favourite love story Oh, that's lovely that's female friendship, eh, Dolly? It um it reminds me of my childhood, The Vicar of Dibley. I my love mom, The Vicar of Dibley. My mum adores it. We watch it loads. We still watch it mm. loads, actually. I think it's they great. also love Rev as a real theme to yeah. what my family enjoy. What will you be doing for Valentine's Day this year, Dolly? My friend Sabrina and I are the only remaining single women in London, in our, sorry, no, in our group of friends. It's a nice homage to her in your column in Sunday Time Style on Sunday. Yeah, I was, I was writing about how we always spend Valentine's Day together and we have done for a fairly long time. Um, as it's just this nice tradition that we do together and whenever one of us starts dating someone the other one always worriedly asks what's going to happen at Valentine's Day and we just decided that we've made a pact that whatever happens, boys marriage children we will always spend that day together that will always kind of be our evening so this year we're going to a series of talks and events and comedy that's kind of love themed at the Tate Modern and I anticipate there will be hundreds of other single women there and probably a few couples on an awkward hinge date and I look forward (laughs) to terrorizing them and uh, then we're going to go out for dinner how about you that sounds awesome 
I'm taking myself to A Star Is Born alone. Very I'm nice. so excited. Anyone with a young child will know that going to the cinema is yeah. very, very rare when you have a baby and even rarer. Uh, um, so I'm thrilled that I finally get to see it. I just only hope someone doesn't feel sorry for me. No, <laughs> no. I'm so excited for you. And I'm also so happy that it's still on. I, I know. I, I mean, I feel like I'm watching it about a year after then are 99 people in the room <laughs> and only one person has done. I joke with Lauren now that when we do everything I know about love live, when I start launching into talking about the power of female friendship and she does this like sort of shit-eating grin at me with a bit of a glazed eye. She's Bradley Cooper. She's Bradley Cooper. I love her. And I'm saying, there can be 99 people in, in one room and just one has to believe in you. I don't mind that that's my 99 people shtick. <laughs> what was your worst ever Valentine? I don't know. I've never really celebrated it, so I haven't had one to go wrong. In the many, many, many years I was North London's longest reigning virgin, uh, <laughs> my mum used to send me a card from the two family cats. <laughs> where sometimes she would put the, one of their paws <laughs> in ink. In ink. Yeah. Which wasn't great. Um, when I did my dating column, I dragged Sabrina and our other friend Belle to a singles dinner party, who was a man I didn't know, but I remember had, this. Oh, God. It was strange. I'd had a Tinder date with the year before, and we'd sort of stayed in touch. And then he got he brought his two friends, and I brought my two friends, and we were, all went round to his house for dinner. Was this separate to the roast that you wrote about for The Telegraph? Um, sorry, my head when you said roast there just went somewhere pretty grotesque. Which roast did I write? <laughs> you wrote about um, hosting a Sunday roast for the Telegraph, and I believe you oh, had no. to... Oh, no. No, that was a different find one. Find some people in the pub. Yeah, but I had to go find some random men in the pub. No, One this... was very drunk, wasn't he? Yes, he I started didn't eating tell food him... with his hands. <laughs> didn't Farley tell him off or start... tell him to start behaving himself? Yeah, yeah. No, this was a different... I mean, the number of weird stunts I've done for Sunday supplements. No, <laughs> this was when we went... We did this joint dinner, we did this singles dinner party, and the two people who knew each other barely knew each other. They'd gone on one Tinder date, me and this guy. And we went round to his house, which I'm pretty sure wasn't his. By the end of the evening, we were pretty sure that he'd, <laughs> he'd rented it for the night. And um, we all had to share plates. Sharing plates is a no, huge no. phenomenon. No, as in... Share a main plate. We had to share a main plate and share the cutlery. Is, was that to make you feel intimate? Was that part of the shtick? Or did he just not have enough crockery? He didn't have enough crockery. <laughs> and one of us had to sit on an upturned bin. And then the evening, I don't know how it happened. We were like, oh, I wonder which one will end before we arrive. We were like, I wonder which one will go off with which one. And then and we which got one there, will end up in the bin? And it was very clear that none of us were going to go off with any of them and in fact we went we just sat on two separate sofas girls on one side boys on the other and then the only way that we could find ourselves bonding is we all sat around and watched, <laughs> watched the olympics opening ceremony on an ipad on an ipad that in is depressing, isn't it yeah so that was that was probably the strangest valentine's day that i've had i haven't celebrated valentine's day for ages because i i think once you get Married, you can think of funner days to go out for mm, dinner than on yeah, Valentine's yeah. Day. Um, I think my worst Valentine's Day dinner, though, was when I went out for dinner with my ex-boyfriend after having just broken up with him. I'm not sure why we still oh honoured the day. I, I remember just crying. What, just going as friends? No, um, I think I was still going as someone that loved him. 
Oh, Pandy. I know, isn't that sad? I can't bear it. It's so sad, never was so when happy around me. When you tell me these stories about you and your ex-boyfriends, I can't bear it. <laughs> you really I do deserve that happy marriage you're in. <laughs> I'll have a much nicer time alone at A Star Is Born. <laughs> I'll get myself a big slush puppy. I was going to say, large popcorn for one, I think. We do, of course, have some Valentine's Day surveys for you. Serenata Flowers did a survey and um, scanned their UK customer data to uncover the most romantic men's names across the UK. Number one is Nicholas. He's the most generous man in London, with Peter in second place and David in third. I think it's done on how many men are called those names. Yes, yes, exactly. So Nicholas, Peter and David were always going to win because there They're are more names. Nicholas, Peters and Davids. One would hope it's not that literal, but I... I anyway, what else did the uh, poll... You mustn't undermine the, the survey. 84% of men in London send flowers to their loved ones, whilst only 16% of women decide to show their love this way. That's quite a high stat of women. And 94% of men in England keep the spark alive by sending flowers for Valentine's. I think that's very high. Yeah, uh, I'm in the 6% of that third stat that don't receive flowers on Valentine's Day. Does Ollie not send you any? No, I think in our whole relationship I've maybe got them once. But then again, I'm the one leaving him holding the baby while I prance off to watch A Star Is Born. Well, that's the most romantic thing you could do. And I also always forget our anniversary and often the exact date of his birthday. So I'm not really one to talk. (laughs) Would you call yourself a romantic, Dolly? Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm nutty about it. I'm quite romantic, but not on the days that I should be. No, I hate Valentine's Day. I hate Valentine's Day, but I am a very romantic person. I'm quite romantic, though. Like, I tried to be romantic with you today. It went wrong. I know, I loved that you did that. Because I forgot which station you come to. But I strapped on the baby and grabbed some coffees... And then I was literally standing outside at the platform <laughs> so that you'd see me. Yeah. And it uh, turns out I'd gone to the wrong station and Dolly was already at my house, which was a weird <laughs> reversal when I turned up 10 minutes late. But I think that's lovely. I think you can be romantic with your friends as well. Yeah, I love doing surprises as yeah. well. So I often send my friends um, presents in the post and books and stuff like that. Probably more romantic with them than, <laughs> than Ollie. But yes, romance comes in many forms, doesn't it, Dolly? It does indeed. Some more Valentine's Day info for you, hot off the press. (laughs) A quarter of millennials feel that Valentine's Day is the loneliest time of the year to be single, causing the majority, 54%, to actively pursue a last-minute date. A fifth admit that they have returned to an ex, and one in six have called on someone they have previously turned down (laughs) in order to avoid being alone on February 14th. There has also been a rise in Palentine's Day, with a fifth of millennials choosing to spend Valentine's Day with a pal. You're on a Palentine's date. A quarter have been on a friend date and a third have exchanged Valentine's Day gifts with a pal. Meanwhile, a fifth admit they have hooked up with a friend. (laughs) Watch out, Sabrina. On Valentine's Day. And half confess it is something they would consider. Confess? Oh, sorry. They would consider getting off with a pal. Yeah. Well, I'll shag you, Sabrina, if you get me drunk enough. The UK is set to spend over 990 million celebrating Valentine's Day, with the average person spending £28.60 on a present for their partner. Or themselves at the cinema. Flowers, chocolates and jewellery are the nation's favourite Valentine's Day gifts, but a teddy bear is voted the worst possible present. I So you called it Palentine's Day, not Galentine's Day. I hate either. 
I Valentine's Day, sadly, has started making me feel a bit queasy. Well, I think Valentine's Day is also, to me, a bit weird because it sounds and reads a bit like Palestine. And I think you need to be quite careful not to mix up these two news stories as one is slightly more important than the you other. You must not get Palentine's Day... Mixed up with Palestine. Mixed up with Palestine, everyone. That is our main warning. <laughs> anyway, it does not surprise me that Valentine's Day makes lots of people feel lonely in the same way that Christmas does and in the same way that New Year can give people FOMO yeah. um, and also make people feel like they aren't good enough. I think Valentine's Day probably came out of that loneliness. So even mm. though I might hate the names, any encouragement for people to find solace yeah. in friendship is great so hate the name like the sentiment love the sentiment whether it's valentine's day or palentine's day or galentine's day whether you celebrate it or not we hope you are tucking into a good and sizable love sausage <laughs> this february 14th <laughs> the high-low comes from my long-held favourites, the luxury professional hair care brand Kerastase. That isn't empty hyperbole. My hair was dry and frazzled thanks to years of hair colouring and straightening and I was constantly dousing it in serum. And then I discovered Kerastase in my early 20s and their masks honestly changed my hair's life. Happily for me, there's a whole new raft of products to let my hair live its best life. Blonde Absolute is a new in-salon and at-home hair care range dedicated to blonde hair. As Pandora alludes to, when you have ahem, natural blonde hair like us, there are two essentials, repair to prevent dryness and tone neutralisation to prevent brassiness. With Blonde Absolute, there is no need to compromise. It removes unwanted brassiness while strengthening and hydrating the hair, leaving it feeling soft and looking shiny. That is no mean feat when you colour your hair. This customisable hair care range cares for all types of blondes, from sun-kissed highlights to balayage to all-over icy white tones. God, I love the word balayage. So do I. Visit kerastars.co.uk for exclusive offers to celebrate the launch of new blonde Absolute, available for a limited time only. Thank you very much to our hair's friend for life, Kerastars. One of those iconic New Yorker long reads went viral last week, and it's all the internet was chattering about. Journalist Ian Parker wrote a searching, rigorous and thoroughly researched piece on former book editor Dan Mallory, who writes under the name of A.J. Finn, who wrote the best-selling thriller The Woman in the Window, which went straight to number one last year, has sold in 40 countries, has been made into a blockbuster movie and has made the author a millionaire. But as the subheading of the piece promises, the author's life contains even stranger twists. For anyone who hasn't read the piece, it's the story of a series of deceptions and convoluted lies and stories told by Dan Mallory that helped him ascend through the ranks of Oxford University, the publishing world in London and New York, and ultimately promote a book that became a global phenomenon. He's a sort of literary Anadelphi, but what's so fascinating about his story, I think, is that he didn't deceive the likes of the fashion and events world with an emperor's new clothes mirage of money and hotel rooms and champagne and VIP treatment. He deceived seemingly some of the most intelligent minds, such as tutors at Oxford and editors at world-famous publishing houses. You're so right. What's so fascinating about this New Yorker piece, and I think why so many people have been 
utterly beguiled by it, is that Dan Mallory didn't use money or parties or the internet. He did it in a stark place of work, in multiple work environments and the toughest institutions to be allowed access Mm. into over a long period of time, over a decade, more than a decade. Um, And those institutions are ones that arguably hosted the very cleverest of minds. People feel passionately about this piece. We received... Um, quite a few emails and messages about us covering it. The one that I found most interesting was from a publishing editor sent from her private address saying it's essentially a talented Mr Ripley story with shades of Belle Gibson, the author who claimed her diet cured her cancer and got a half million penguin deal before she was busted. She said, as someone tweeted on Monday, despite how manically busy everyone in the publishing industry is, somehow the entire industry managed to find time to read an extra 11,000 words this week so it really is no Mm. mere hyperbole to say it took the publishing industry by storm i was at penguin on the night the story had come out and my publisher juliette was absolutely beside herself about it and insisted (laughs) that i had to read it now i'm sure everyone must be in the publishing world trading stories of working with him or encountering him because it seems he really did get quite far up in the ranks as an editor at big publishing houses such as little brown um, in both New York and in London. Yeah, he had some really famous authors under him, like Sophie Hanna, who is mm. a best-selling crime author. It seems like many of his colleagues and the Oxford New College tutor who accepted him onto his course because of a personal statement filled with lies were utterly surprised when the writer of this piece goes to interview them and tell them about the long catalogue of deceptions and gross exaggerations that formed Dan's story and identity but turbocharged his career. But there were also a lot of people who always suspected that there was Mm. something strange and kind of untruthful about him that made them uneasy. It's interesting to note that the piece states that when his book went into a bidding war with different major publishing houses um, under his nom de plume, there was, was lots of different publishers bidding. And then when his real name was revealed at the 11th hour, a load of publishers dropped out of the race because he had this very strange reputation within the industry. He had this sort of reputation as a lot of very precocious, successful at a young age men seem to have, isn't it? Where mm. some people were utterly charmed by him and others were completely spooked and mm. didn't trust the yes, words exactly. he said. It is, of course, a tale of massive deception, which is why it's one that interests us so much. And we cover stories of this ilk I would say fairly fairly regularly it belongs in Abby Ellen's book Duped that we were talking about just this week there's one point and to me this is such a minor detail but to me really reflected his urgent need to be duplicitous in every aspect of his life where Dan Mallory claims to be looking after a dog during a conference call with his two publishing colleagues and he affects all sorts of looking after a dog sounds like get down, get down mm. and after the call the two mm. colleagues hang up and look at each other and they say there's no dog I and they both knew so that was no telling dog. that detail yeah And he claimed to be looking after the dog as an excuse for absence, I think. And this is a recurring theme of the story, that he constantly wasn't where he should be and wasn't fulfilling work obligations because of a complicated lie, often to do with his health or the health of his family. And then still quite brazenly found the time to write this number one book. Those lies were extensive, like shocking lies. And his, his family have 
all refused to comment and are very much sticking by him. But he lied about his mother dying, his father dying, his brother dying. He lied several times about his own fictitious cancer, including inventing an inoperable brain tumour whilst at Little Brown, for which he took time off and wore a baseball cap to cover the effects of the chemo. He then took on the persona of his brother, Jake, and emailed everyone when at his next job at William Morrow, saying that he was in hospital, having it removed. He wrote numerous emails updating his colleagues on his own progress they were idiosyncratic in jake's tone they were zingy we learn his brother won't comment for the piece he lied about having two doctorates one from oxford and another psychology doctorate from an american university he lied about who he worked with he claimed to have been an editor at a publishing house called ballantine in order to get a job at little brown when actually he was an assistant he lied about publishing tina fey's book for example she says he didn't it wasn't an editor on that book he lied about being a runway model about being on the cover of russian vogue he lied from what the piece can construe about conceivably everything big and small and he got away with it because he was as the piece writes well read and ebullient and made a memorable first impression the scope of lying was uh, and the gall was Mm. extraordinary and what's so interesting about the lying is that he himself seems to be fascinated by lies Mm. His dissertation, I think, and certainly Mm. his best-selling novel all feature characters who lie or create a second persona or who speak to people under the disguise of an alias, like he did with these emails from his brother Jake. So it's something he must be on some level aware of in himself and maybe even testing and interested in the power that those lies can yield when told persuasively because as you mentioned pandora time and time again there are accounts that detail that he was an incredibly charming and funny and quick-witted man he has charmed whole audiences over the last year around the world doing a number of public events to promote his book and that's how the piece opens and the details that were ever fluctuating of the story of his life and the lives of his family held audiences captive. I wonder if he'll ever write a, a memoir about his life of deception. He then did what many people have been most incensed by and released a press release or statement claiming that his lies were due to him being bipolar. In my distress, I did or said or believed things I would never ordinarily say or do or believe, things of which, in many instances, I have absolutely no recollection. You can't really challenge someone about their own mental health. That would be quite appalling for us to um, conjecture whether or not he does suffer from bipolar. So you sort of just have to leave it at that. But there are many who claim that his lying was due to a person that was entirely lucid, calculating and ruthless. And it would be quite in keeping with everything that has been written and is known about this man to invent more um, emotionally manipulative, sort of unquestionable situations. Mm. Mm. Because you could say that bipolar like a brain tumor is something that no one would ever lie about but you know you can only speculate on that i think there's also another interesting thing to be explored which is why he chose to lie to reach the high echelons of specifically the literary world as a white man he was already so much further ahead than other candidates but it's interesting to me that it's this industry that made him lie so much about his credentials his family and his background publishing is a famously elitist and historically nepotistic industry and i think it's telling that it can incite such a complicated and convoluted second identity that he thought would be more appealing than what he could offer i'm not obviously saying that's the fault of the publisher of of the publishing industry i just think that 
it's interesting that it is that industry that made that made someone lie quite so much there are such bizarre details of this persona building such as he never finished his doctorate at Oxford and yet he was signing emails off as Dr Dan Mallory and when he went back over to New York to work in publishing there having spent time at Oxford and in London he apparently spoke with this bizarre English accent and was saying bloody and brilliant and asking where the loo is it's completely extraordinary and honestly it is everything that Abby Ellen writes about in that in that book like having just finished duped it makes me kind of even more interested to um to hear of him because he she would call him a psychopath Mm. and she explains the difference actually between a psychopath and a sociopath which is quite interesting and Mm. she says it's actually quite a lot of it's to do with like um terminology and how some things date and go in and out of fashion she Mm. says actually people now use psychopaths and a sociopath anyway there is of course more to this piece and more to the publishing scandal than aj finn's lies and that is because he was an executive editor at William Morrow, an imprint of HarperCollins, before writing his book, mind, on $200,000 a year with what many considered scant experience. And that's that's why I was just thinking when you were saying, oh, like, why would he need to lie as a white man? I think he was just impatient. I think he wanted mm. to ascend the ranks as, fast as, as yeah. fast as possible. While women who comprise roughly 70 to 80% of publishing employees, but only a handful of senior roles, must contend with a glass ceiling, Mallory was operating a great glass elevator somehow getting from assistant to vice president of a publishing house with an estimated salary of two hundred thousand dollars in roughly a decade wrote sean kane in the guardian little brown the publisher where mallory worked revealed last year that they had a mean gender pay gap of 29.69 percent and that's obviously not in favor of women that's one of the most astonishing things that you find as you read the piece and this story unfurls is you wonder how he managed to keep jumping up the ladder when on the previous rung the evidence seems to have always been he hadn't done a great job had been negligent of his work and made many of his colleagues feel uneasy Mm. he ended up with such a big job that he was living in a midtown Manhattan apartment with a swimming pool I quite fancy being in a swimming pool now I think if I were a woman working in publishing I would have found it very difficult to read that or if you were someone that just wanted to be in a swimming pool. Or if you just fancied a dip. If you fancied a dip, why, politi- why politicise it? Hard. Yeah, let's just take this for what it is, Dolly. <laughs> and that's despite, as you say, all the suspicion about his character. An editor at Tor Books, Roxy Chen, said that Mallory's story showed that publishers were still hiring based on I like the cut of your jib, which I think is a very good point, whilst Wyman Cam at Oberon Books said that what publishing houses should be thinking very hard about is how many other Daniel Mallory's are working in the industry mm. right now. that's so true I also think instead of deciding whether Dan Mallory is good or bad you know ill or manipulative weak or strong this is a story of our time and a comment on our relationship with the truth when I was reading how he has built a personal story around a seed of truth which was his mum was ill with cancer when he was a child and that must have had an effect on him and also he seems that he was kind of traumatised by metaphorically losing parents um, in regards to his parents' separation. And he took those two kind of kernels of truth and built out from there to make it more tragic or entertaining. Or maybe developed a habit of only being able to talk about himself in ways he found interesting when he was couching in tragedy. Maybe he found that when he talked about his mum being ill, people were more empathetic to him. He found it easier to get ahead and then he didn't know how to exist outside of that narrative. Totally. And I hate to say it, it did make me think about everything I know about love. 
And seriously, I think any writer who has shared a personal story would have read this piece and panicked a bit maybe well thought about how much they have Mm. branded or photocopied or inflated an experience or memory Mm. for a story and we all do this to some extent that's what storytelling is the difference is this is a very 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 extreme example this is not an example of someone's memory warping or being in flux as they age and view the story differently retrospectively which i does think happen you know there's a there's a reason why people in the same family can all experience the same family experience and each of them have a totally different Mm-mm. story of what it was but this is just flat out lying in order to gain money sympathy power affection and notoriety but yeah, I think that we should be... I'm I'm not so interested in moralising, finding out the kind of clear-cut answer of whether he was a good or bad person. I think it's more interesting to explore where we are now with the truth. Rachel Cook wrote a fantastic piece for The Guardian. I love Rachel Cook's on writing. On the subject. Do you know, I'm really not as familiar with it as I should be. She writes a lot for The Guardian. She must be one of their most prolific features writers. But I, I truly think this was the most the most brilliant Best thing you read, the most it? brilliant commentary on it. Yes, I don't know what, if anything, is wrong with Mallory. It may be that he is, to use an old-fashioned word, mad, or it may be that he is simply bad. More likely, it is a combination of things. In truth, it's difficult to separate him from the wider literary culture in which he operated, a culture in which writers, whatever their sensibility or suitability, are expected to perform like seals at every opportunity, whether online, on the radio or at festivals, a culture in which some kind of backstory is useful, not to say essential, and all the more so if you're a white, male and seemingly privileged. A quiet writer is an invisible writer and therefore an unsuccessful one. Nor is it possible to argue that Mallory, however extreme his case, isn't on a continuum. Whether we care to admit it or not, we're all rolling along on a conveyor belt of pretense and deceit now. Some of this has to do with the identity politics and the pressure it exerts in terms of how others may perceive us and how we want them to. In my case, there came a point when I stopped being coy about aspects of my northern childhood, what I'd previously kept hidden. I began subtly to deploy the better to make myself seem less privileged or perhaps just more authentic. Did you experience that kind of seal-like sensation when you felt like... I think what happens, I interviewed Matt Haig recently and he said, and he obviously has has spoken about incredibly personal and tragic experiences for a lot of the work that he writes. And he says, you know, you have to be careful as an author or a memoirist or a journalist, a first person journalist doing this, that you don't make yourself memeable, that you Mm. don't make your incredibly personal and precious and nuanced experiences, that you don't reduce them to be bite-sized and digestible and shareable and understandable for everyone else because that because life this experience of life and who we are is so complicated it's so complicated and we've got to be careful i think all of us not to be pressured in by who by agents by publishers by pr people by editors whatever to not um whittle away and rub down the edges of those experiences to make it a more easily understandable and sellable product and story i also think it's we find it much more problematic in this age and this is something i sorry not to plug again but this is very much the kind of fertile ground that i explore in my essay is that we have a um 
is that humans are inherently hypocrites. Of we course, all are, of course. Um, and our truth is fluctuating. And yet, we have we cannot in 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 the modern day we cannot accept that other people are hypocrites mm. whereas in victorian literature you know think how much they wrote about the doppelganger jekyll and hyde jekyll and hyde was meant to show you know the two sides the of fragmented man, self the fragmented exactly. self and there is so and that's exactly where kind of doppelganger came from which was something that very much you know came to the fore in the 19th century and if you look at literature they have much more we i feel like we're so um the more we learn, the sort of almost more innocent and naive we become. And I really I, I include totally, myself in I that. totally agree. I was reading... And the I, more simplistic we become Really simplistic. Things. And I was. this is something that I was I was reading in that book that I keep referencing, Duped, is a lot of who she was talking about. Um, they were people that were really revered and had uh, mistresses or had other wives. And whilst people were, you know kind of shocked when they found out or maybe it was accepted but thought of it was a bit odd it wasn't this like absolute life-defining showstopper that it is now like if you think about how it used to be just so common for everyone to have yeah. or lots of people to have mistresses or you know to every time you watch a period drama they're all romping with one another yet we are despite yeah, totally. divorce rates at being at a soaring height we are completely incapable of it i know i'm getting slightly off tangent now, but it all comes down to our just inability to metabolize like deception yes. even though we are inherently deceitful and it's, also this is as you t- touched on this is an extreme ex- extreme example of deception but you know the fragmented self the hypocrisies of identity and also the need to as as Anne Helen Peterson called it in her burnout essay the need to self-optimize mm. the the narrativization of the self you know illustrating that does exist in all of us yeah. and anyone who doesn't human, I take my hat off but to it's them. a human instinct it's a survival technique it's yeah. evolution it's it's to to be included is to belong is to be part of the herd so yeah. you do everything you can to make yourself more appealing to others you mm. know it's something that is part of like likability and people pleasing it's i love that we live in this deeply analytical age but it does mean that sometimes we forget that like all these things have existed for a really long time it's not like this has never happened before we started analyzing it in another piece in the guardian they raised a really good point which is that it's impossible not to glamorize this um as a bit sick and a bit sexy and i know what they mean i don't think this will dent book sales i don't i think it will make him look roguish and i actually think it will make book sales increase so do I. for example i'd never heard of him or his number one book because it's not my kind of genre crime but now i really want to read it have you read it had you heard of him no i hadn't but i instantly went on <laughs> Did you recognise the cover? No, but again, I'm not. I don't really read thrillers. No, no, but but I know. You'd have heard of Girl on the Train or Gone Girl. Yeah. Or When I I Go to Sleep or whatever. I think the fact that he writes mystery and thriller and essentially has created a story that is a code to be cracked, both in fiction and in his real life just all adds to the macabre appeal of him and his work. Mm. I think this won't touch him. I think he will continue to write and I think his books will just continue to sell. And I think he'll get a multi-million dollar memoir out of Mm. it as well whenever he chooses to. Maybe he's the cleverest of all of us. (laughs) Well, I wonder how many friends he'll have left afterwards. It's, I mean, it's gloriously fucked up in a way that's quite impossible not to be titillated by, despite its dreary patriarchal connotations it's quite meta. Mallory is literally the psychopath at the centre of his own story. 
That doctorate he started and did not complete at Oxford was about the work of Patricia Highsmith, a crime writer, and he said of her character, Tom Ripley, when talking to the Observer last year as Women in the Window came out, I think one of the reasons I was attracted to Highsmith is that most crime fiction is morally educative. Morals will be upheld. Justice will be doled out. Wrongdoers will be caught and punished. But that did not happen with Tom Ripley. And it fascinated me to see this character get away with stuff. It fascinated more to find myself rooting for him. I still think that is a pretty nifty trick. Clearly, it's one he's hoping he's pulled off himself. Thanks very much for listening to The High Low. You can rate and review us on iTunes. Please do that. It will make us very happy and will boost us up the charts. And you can also subscribe. And subscribe. I knew I could see I'm so bad at doing the ending. You forgot the golden triumvirate. And it will help people find us. You can email us show at gmail.com and tweet us at show. And I strongly recommend that you listen to us while eating co-op salt and vinegar crisps. Bye-bye. Bye. And swimming. 